Hey there, love. You're listening to episode nine of the Being and Doing Now podcast, where we explore what it means to know yourself better, love yourself more, and share from the heart. I'm your host, Kristen Quirk, and I'm so glad you're here. Today, I have an amazingly insightful conversation to share with you that can be absolutely transformative for your relationships. Before we jump in, I'll say this briefly. If you find value in this podcast, please head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and do two things. One, give it a five-star rating, and two, write a brief review. I intentionally keep this show free of third-party advertising for you, so your ratings and reviews really do help get the word out about the show. Today, we're talking about something that's critical to be aware of and do well in relationships. It's about communication and how to share something when there's a lot of emotion involved for you and possibly for the other person too. And that may be for entirely different reasons because everybody is different. So today, my guest is Britt Frank. Britt is a featured mental health expert on podcasts, blogs, and television, and she'll share with us how you can have difficult conversations with your loved ones, or anyone you're in relationship with, really, and she offers specifics about what to say and how to say it in a way that is accurate and authentic and honors both you and the person you're in conversation with. And we also talk about what on earth all this has to do with the body and with trauma, whether you realize you've experienced trauma or not. In fact, that's where our conversation starts. So welcome, Britt. It's so good to have you. Thank you for asking. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I am excited to have you and to talk about this topic. To get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes. So I am a psychotherapist. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. My specialty is trauma and the nervous system. So I'm certified as a somatic experiencing practitioner, which is a lot of, you know, a lot of words and a lot of letters, which basically just means that my specialization is in understanding that trauma is very much in the physiology. It's not just in our heads. And um, a lot of what we call mental health symptoms or disorders, actually, if you drill down far enough, is untreated trauma. And often when you treat trauma and you understand how to regulate the nervous system, mental health symptoms tend to resolve. Can you tell us a little bit about your own experience with trauma when you realized that you may have experienced it yourself and then how that's informed the work that you do? Sure. It's so funny because, you know, if you had asked me up until the point where I was 27, I would have said, I don't have trauma. I just, you know, have issues and I have these problems and these thoughts and feelings. But, you know, I grew up in a two-parent home and we always had enough food and I was never beat. So what's my problem? Like, why am I crazy? And I really did think for a long time because I had anxiety. I had panic disorder. I had depression. I had OCD. I had sexual dysfunction. I had all of these things with no identification origin. And so if you had asked me prior, and I wasn't a therapist right out of school, I, I worked in media, I worked in advertising, I did a lot of random jobs, none of any of which had anything to do with therapy. And it was in the getting therapy and going on my own healing journey that I decided all I want to do all day is read about and study and talk about the brain and trauma and the nervous system. And so I made a career switch. And now I do that. 
But, you know, a lot of what we think of as trauma are these big, overt events. But trauma is not in the events that happen to us. It's in the way our nervous systems process the things that happen. So something that looks totally benign to one person can be incredibly traumatic to another. And I did not really figure all this out until late 20s. Fascinating. And so that whole process of, you know, being trained in somatic experiencing and really understanding how trauma gets in the body. Can you talk a little bit more, too, about your journey with understanding and connecting with your body and your, you know, your emotions and where trauma was stored and all of that kind of thing? Well, I did not live in my body for a very long time. I was very much a a head person. I was very, very functional. I was very good at disconnecting and just going really hard, very type A, high achiever, you know, perfectionist kind of thing. And I thought that I was okay because I could function on a very cerebral or head level. And then I remember the first time I went to a somatic experiencing therapist as a client and she said to me, well, you know, where do you feel that in your body? And I'm like, the hell you say, I I don't do feelings in my body. I don't enjoy feelings in my body. It was never even occurred to me that I lived in a body. It was, I live in my head, I live in my head. And having to contend with feelings and sensations and all of these things was really, really terrifying. I loved being in somatic experiencing to work on my own trauma because it was such a gentle, slow, safe process that really made it okay for me to come home to live in my body. Wow. And so I saw recently that you have been doing aerial hoop work. What has that been like in terms of connecting with your body and all of that flow? Oh my goodness. It's awful. I actually did an aerial hoop practice this morning and I cried because it was so frustrating. So, you know, part of the challenge of recognizing that our minds are located inside of brains and our brains are located inside of bodies is learning how to connect with all three. And because one, I do this for a living and two, I'm feeling averse. I'm really, really quick at just leaving my body and leaving my feelings and doing aerial hoop, which is a circus art. And, you know, you're on this big giant ring suspended from the ceiling and you have to maneuver your body there's no way to be in your head and flip upside down and spin at the same time I'm not saying that that's a good solution for everybody for me being in an art form that requires me to use my body and use it in a strength-based way that forces all of my brain flow to I have to pull myself up. I don't have time to think about anything or to think about how ugly this might be right now or what kind of weird face I might be making is a really great practice for me to recognize that this is a body that I live in, not just a head. So all of this really ties into what inspired the thought for this discussion today. And that is a really amazing post you put on Instagram back in May. And the post said, Feelings are not the same things as emotions. And, you know, in order to be able to understand what that means and what we're about to talk about, you have to be, in my mind or in my view, connected with the body, right? You've got to understand what the body's feeling. You've got to be able to discern and distinguish those feelings from thoughts and then the meaning that we make out of those thoughts and those feelings and all of that kind of thing. So, that just kind of sets the stage for your post <laughs> and so and what we're going to talk about from here. So, well, I can give you kind of the very quick overview. So, for people who 
are listening, the post is really simple. It said feelings are not the same thing as emotions, and then the body kind of unpacked that. So essentially, at its most simplistic, feelings, we call them feelings because we can feel them. So feelings are sensations. There are ways in which, you know, feelings would be my stomach is tight, my palms are sweaty. So anytime that I'm using the word feelings, I am referring to sensory input and a way in which my body is experiencing a sensation. Emotions would be me making up a meaning about those sensations. So my stomach hurts, therefore I'm anxious. That's the emotion. The feeling is my stomach hurting. The emotion is anxiety. But sometimes your stomach hurting can be about anger. And sometimes your stomach hurting can be about other things. And so emotions are the stories that we attach to our feelings. Or I'll rephrase that. Emotions are what happens when we attach stories to our feelings. That's a better way of saying that. Interesting. So emotions are things like, like you mentioned, anger, anxiety. Uh, what are some others that people might often feel? Shame is a biggie. Shame is an emotion. Now, all emotions obviously have a physiological sensation to them, and that's what I refer to as my feelings. So emotions would be shame, guilt, anger, love, joy, passion, concern. Those would be the emotions. And then the feelings would be, you know, tight throat, tight stomach, tense jaw, dilated pupils, sweaty palms, dry mouth. And those would be feelings. So just a little side note, or maybe it's a bunny trail, but, you know, a lot of times I think what happens, and I know that I do this, and I've, I've experienced this too with other people, we often say, you know, I'm really just feeling this. And mm-hmm. I've, I've read several things about millennials and how they communicate. I'm not a member of the millennial generation, but, you know, that's apparently a common way to communicate. I just really feel or I feel this. And what more often it's doing in what I've read is it's introducing an opinion. It might be like a softer way to broach a subject, right? Or to offer an opinion and maybe wanting to be inclusive or not offend anybody. But it's not really grounded in the kind of physiological sensations that we're talking about here. And I've noticed too that people do that. And again, I do it too with the intuitive kind of translation of energy almost like, wow, I'm really feeling that maybe that person is angry with me, right? It's more of a sensing. So how can we distinguish, like if we're speaking about language, how do we distinguish between all of these things so that we're understanding one another? Yeah, and it's so funny because I use the word, you know, like that as well, because it's shorthand, it's what we know. And it is used kind of just colloquially as a lot of different things. And my argument, again, and I say this on my Instagram all the time, because I believe so strongly that the words that we use to label our experience really matter in our success at shaping, taking power of and altering our experience. And so I would say that anxiety is on the rise. The mental health epidemic is at, you know, all-time proportions that the more we know and the more we do, somehow we're getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and I say that in quotes. So something's not working. And so that would be my argument for, well, this is the way it's being done, but what's being done is creating a, a culture of chaos. So why not look and start with the language that we're using and using words that actually describe what's happening? So Yes and no. It's annoying. I had one of my guys that I work with. He's like, this is such an annoying way to speak. And I said, yes, but how is your way working? It's not. So 
I'd much rather you try the annoying way, which tends to be more effective, if not cumbersome, than doing just throwing. I just really feel like you're not listening to me, which generally is a, you know, kindling for a relational conflict, if that makes sense. It does, absolutely. And you put that in your in the caption or in the text that explains Mm -hmm. the post. So that was your very good example. So maybe we can come back to some better ways to communicate other things like opinions or intuitive feelings or whatever afterwards. So let's go back to your example of the, I just really feel like you're not listening to me, if you would, and kind of break that down for us in the way that you have found is effective in reframing that or restating that. Yeah, and the the model that I'm really referencing for people who really like to know, like, what is this thing, is not what anything I came up with. It's, you know, all taken from Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, REBT, and that's the idea that events are followed by our beliefs and our interpretations about the events, and that produces our feelings, which produces our actions. So just want to attribute credit to where these ideas are coming from because they certainly are not pioneered by me. So when you say to somebody, I really feel like you're not listening to me, what you're doing is taking data, and that might be they're not looking at you, they're looking on their phone, or they're in some other way not paying attention to you. And when you see those cues, the story that you're telling yourself is, well, based on these cues, my interpretation is that I'm not being paid attention to, and about that I feel angry. But when you say to someone... I feel like you're not paying attention to me. There's really no good way to respond to that. But when you say to someone, you know, when I see you on your phone with your back to me, the story I'm telling myself about that is that I'm not being paid attention to and about that I'm feeling kind of angry and I'm wondering if you would be willing to put the phone down. It's an odd way of speaking, but it's so much more effective because it's very clear on here are the cues I'm picking up, here's the meaning I'm making out of that, here's the feeling that I'm feeling, and here's my, my request of the relationship. So here's where I get a little hung up and it might just be in my own, you know, my own mental switching to this way of speaking, because I really, I agree with it in theory. In theory, right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you said I'm feeling angry. So is it okay to use the word feeling when you're talking about the emotion? Oh, yeah, because emotions do have feelings attached to them. I just want people to understand that emotions and feelings aren't exactly the same thing. But you don't have to say, I am experiencing the emotion of anger as evidenced by the feeling in my jaw. Like, that's a little much. But when I say I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because it's a good distinction. When you're saying I'm feeling angry, knowing in your own head that you have body sensations with a story attached to it, and we're going to call that anger. Gotcha. Okay. I like that. That feels good. So you also mentioned thoughts as mental constructs out of the mind. Is that the meaning? Uh-huh. Is that where the meaning comes in or is that something different? Yes. Our thoughts are our interpretations. Brene Brown uses the phrase, the story I'm telling myself, which I love because it's so not psychobabbly. Like, you know, to say to your partner, you know, the mental construct that's being generated as a result of this data, like that's obnoxious as all get up. So... To just say, you know, the story I'm telling myself about this or my interpretation, those are all just better ways of saying my thoughts about this are, right? Because they're my my thoughts. They're my thoughts based on my experiences, based on my life. doesn't make them facts. These are just my thoughts about the matter. Right. I love it. So any other examples that come to mind so that we can kind of get a maybe a different perspective or a different view on a on the similar topic um let's see 
Well, you mentioned, you know, I'm not going to get into politics, but, you know, if you're talking to someone and they're like, well, I just really feel like what we need to change in this country is this. It's like, okay, well, that's not a feeling either. I get you. But what I want to do in order to understand someone, especially if they're saying something that I vehemently disagree with, like if someone is saying, I really feel like what we need in this country is blank. If I really, really don't like what I'm hearing, it will help me to stay in my you know, logic part of my brain, the best, you know, people get into conflict because the rational part of the brain goes offline and we're interacting with each other, you know, from more of a reactive rather than responsive, thoughtful place. And so one of the ways that we can keep our brain in the part where it's logical is to break things down. I want to understand here's the data I'm seeing. Here's my interpretation. Here's my feeling. And based on all that, what I think we need in this country is this. That will tell me how you came to these conclusions, and then I can sit there with curiosity instead of judgment, and I can listen with openness instead of, you know, defensiveness. That's a great example and so relevant right now, definitely. Right. And I'm being really careful <laughs> with yes. <my> example. <laughs> I appreciate that. How about on the listening side? What is happening, have you found, for the person who's receiving that information, and how are they tending to process it? And then where does the conversation go from there? Well, that's such a good question. So, you know, the success of a conversation is largely dependent upon the capacity and willingness of the receiver, of the listener. And so a really good thing to start with before you start unloading your thoughts and feelings and data on another person <laughs> is, hey, are you available for me to share some stuff with you? Because the answer to that might be no. And, you know, let's say my partner had a really bad day and they're all up in their limbic brain and they're just, they just don't have the capacity in the moment to really hear me or hold space for me. It's an incredibly respectful thing to approach a relationship, whether it's an intimate relationship or a friendship, with the question, hey, I have some things on my mind. Are you willing to, are you able to hear me? And right there, you're setting the conversation up for success. And it's very rare that people start conversations like that. Would you agree? <laughs> I absolutely agree. Yes, we do. We have to be mindful that someone else is not necessarily in the same position. In fact, it's more than likely they are not thinking about the same thing that we are thinking about at that moment. They haven't had the same experience. They've got their own stuff going on. It's like walking into a room when somebody's in the middle of something and just expecting that they can shift gears immediately without any <laughs> any warning, any, you know, request to be present. So absolutely, I love that. Right. And especially with hot topic conversations like political conversations or navigating relational conflict, consenting to the conversation on the front end already puts you in a better position than when you ambush someone. Because being ambushed by anything, no matter how legitimate, is going to start the conversation with the listener not able physiologically to listen because listening requires your brain to be oriented in such a way that you can. And so if your brain's not available to listen, the conversation is doomed from the start. So really seeking for consent on the front end is a great way to set the conversation up for success later. Absolutely. And just to loop back for a second, you mentioned the limbic brain earlier. So just for folks who might not be familiar with what that is, could you kind of fill in that blank? Yeah. And this is obviously, you know, very, very like shorthand, rudimentary, but essentially your logic brain is the front of your brain. And that's where the executive functioning, logic, reason, good decision making, all of that stuff. So logic brain is the front. 
the limbic brain is responsible for emotions and protection and survival and all other kinds of things, none of which have anything to do with logic. So if you're in your logic brain, you're going to be in a much better place to have a conversation than if you're in your limbic brain, which is going to be more heated, more reactive. And the shorthand I give people is like on a one to a 10, if you're feeling anything higher than a five, it's likely that you're limbic and that's not a good time to have a conversation about anything. Yes. That's when you say, you know what, could we maybe pick this up later <laughs> or press pause? Yeah. I really want to hear exactly. you. But, <clears throat> excuse me. I really want to hear you and I really want to be present. I just really don't feel like I can right now, but let's, you know, talk later. Yeah. Uh-huh. So if this does feel like a lot to take in and start implementing and all of that kind of thing. How do you recommend somebody get started having this conversation or presenting a conversation this way? And then also having a conversation with, you know, like a partner or a friend or a loved one so that they're also on board with what's happening. Because I think sometimes we can, you know, hear something like this and it feels like a great idea and we start doing it, but we haven't really brought somebody else on board with us. So they're like, okay, this is different. I don't know what's happening. What's going on. I'm lost. Right. And so again, the time, like, so even before you start getting into the nuances of thoughts versus feelings versus emotions, which is really hard to do because it's a practice, start at the very base, like the, the meat and potatoes of this is one, when things are not heated, let your partner or your friends know, hey, next time we get into conflict, this is a way I want us to try to talk to each other. And so it's something, again, that most people don't do is create a, a conflict protocol for the relationship, which really, really, it does us a disservice, right? Because when you're, let's say you're dating somebody new, asking the person that you're dating before there's conflict in that glorious honeymoon stage, you know, so, you know, when we do start fighting, what's the best way for me to approach you? Like, do you want me to approach you face to face? Do you want me to text you and ask you for a meeting time and really seeking to understand how you're the person you're in a relationship with wants to hear, hey, we need to talk because no one in the history of anyone responds well to, hey, we need to talk. So we really want to set up what's the structure on the front end before we even begin to attempt conversation. That is a really good point because the conflict is inevitable. Those, hey, can we talk kind of moments are going to happen. And it may seem weird, it may seem awkward to bring that up in advance, and it may feel that way at first too, but I think it is so important because we do need to be prepared. Rather than kind of blindsiding or ambushing each other, not intentionally necessarily, but it just kind of happens in the heat right. of the moment when we are kind of in that limbic brain and our emotions are activated, and then things just kind of happen. And it may be helpful to realize that you might have a few go-arounds, you know, with someone you love in the old way as you're getting to get comfortable with a new yeah. way of, of doing things, of talking. You might have like a conflict and then you might be like, oh, this might be a good time, you know, after things have settled to talk about how we want to handle this the next time. Right. And it's like, why wait until you go through conflict? Poor. I mean, I think as a culture, we've done better at normalizing talking about sex. So, you know, when people are in relationships, being able to talk about sexual health and making sure we're talking about birth control and whatever, th this is no different than that. You know, we really need to be able to talk about relational conflict style and how do you fight and what are your expectations with fights and have that be something that comes up 10 miles before the first conflict. 
Indeed. And ideally, again, we would talk about this up front, but if you don't, <laughs> I just want to you know, offer like some compassion to listeners and say, if you don't, you know, it's, it's okay. Right. You know, there's, there's always an That's opportunity. Okay. Yes. To loop back oh, and, my gosh. and have that conversation. Yeah. No, I, I have never historically done this either. No shame. Like I destroyed relationships. I was incredibly ineffective and just pretty much a hot mess. So, you know, if you're, if you're hearing this on the back end of a huge fight, like no shame, like you were saying, you know, now that you know, you can reapproach it with, hey, let's find a better way to do this. Exactly. What would be like a next step if we're thinking about identifying and labeling the affect or the emotion? What any thoughts about that? Any suggestions? Yeah, and I'll put these all together so it's not super spread out. You know, if you're going to have a hard conversation with someone, there is a safety protocol checklist that you're going to want to go through. The same way surgeons in a hospital, once they started doing, like, checklists on the front end, like patient mortality rates went down. Before you even approach your partner or friend or whomever about a high conflict issue, number one, make sure that they consent the conversation. Number two... Make sure that you are not in your limbic brain. So if on a one to 10, if you are feeling anger higher than a five, if you are feeling fear higher than a five, you are not available to have that conversation. And so it's before we even start trying to communicate skillfully and effectively, one, are you available for this conversation? Two, are they available for this conversation? Right there, if you do nothing else but those things, that's going to handle a whole lot on the front end that you don't have to worry about. So those will be the safety checklist before getting into the conflict. Then the next step would be make sure that you know what it is that you want to communicate. I take notes. Like, this is my job, and I still, if I'm having a high-conflict conversation with someone I care about, my brain goes offline too. So I keep notes like, okay, here's the topic I want to talk about. Here's the data. Here's my story about it. Here's how I feel about it, and here's what I'm asking of the person, and really making sure I stay on topic and that I am sticking to here are facts, here are feelings. They are not the same thing. Here are my interpretations of the facts. That does not make them facts. That makes them my interpretations, and getting really clear. And again, <laughs> people are like, this is so much work. Well, yeah, but it takes more work to fight ineffectively than it does to do this on the front end. So really doing your homework before getting into an argument or a conflict or whatever can do so much to prevent, you know, relational disasters and really protect the integrity of the friendship or the relationship. Absolutely. So any other thoughts that you have to offer around the topic, the steps, any suggestions for people as they engage in the process and get familiar with it and comfortable with it? Yeah, you know, you were talking about, you know, knowing the insides of your body and like trauma and knowing from the inside out. It's really important that you can recognize that your body is doing things in reaction. So, you know, if your partner comes home late and you know you're angry, asking yourself, well, how do I know I'm angry? And then noticing what are the body sensations that tell me that I'm angry? Because the more you can connect with your own physiology, the more in control of your moods, of your relationships and of your choices you're going to be. And so really paying attention to how do I know I'm feeling loved? How do I know that I'm feeling fear? How do I know that I'm feeling shame? And so that way I can be effective when I'm asking people stuff. Like, I really feel like you don't get me. Well, you did this. Here's how I interpret it. My body is doing this. So I think I'm feeling anxious. 
And it would really help me a lot if you would look at me in the eye when we talk. I love it. It's so clear. It's so direct. And it is so, I mean, it's honest, it's transparent, authentic, and it's loving. Mm -hmm. Because I've experienced this in my own relationship, too. I mean, I felt like I was a hot mess in relationships. I felt like I kept having the same one over and over again with different people. Uh And so I had to realize, well, wait a second, what is the only constant in all of those relationships? It was me, you know, so I had to approach it differently and you know I have a beautiful relationship today with my life partner and I love him dearly I mean it doesn't mean it's always easy for either of us but it makes for such a more peaceful loving way of being you know not just the home environment in general but between the two of us you know when we're connecting it's a beautiful thing and and we have difficult conversations with this type of approach and it has made all the difference in the quality and the health of our relationship and then us as people too. So it is so valuable. I love it because, you know, like you were saying, it's so important to know yourself in order to be able to communicate effectively because otherwise we're just sort of flailing around each other and accidentally smacking each other in the face without intending to cause harm. But if I don't know that here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm feeling, and here's how I know that, I'm not going to be able to be peaceful in a relationship because I'm I'm not even going to know myself what the hell is going on. And so it's a practice. It takes work. It's a pain in the butt, to be honest, but it's so worth it. Like you said, because it takes all the judgment off of it. And the more curious that we can be in our relationships to really understand the people we care about, the more effective we're going to be at avoiding, you know, unnecessary conflict and being able to navigate necessary conflict skillfully and peacefully. Exactly. And before I forget, just to kind of loop back to what we were talking about before, any suggestions for how to make a distinction? Like if we are trying to soften an opinion maybe before we offer it, or if we are offering, you know, for those of us who do speak the language of emotions in general and or intuition, right? And we're trying to offer that. Any thoughts for how to do that so that we're distinguishing from this whole conversation we just had? Or that we've been having. Yeah, and again, it's just naming it. If you're talking about, you know, intuitive sensing, then just say that. You know, intuitively, I'm kind of feeling like this. That actually puts it in a category where it's like, okay, you're not interpreting facts and you're not creating a story. This is your intuition, but you're naming it as such. Or you can say, well, you know, the story that I make up is, is this. Or you can even just say, you know, well, this is just my opinion, but I really think that this. And just making sure if you're, if you're communicating an opinion, those are not facts, those are not feelings, those are your thoughts. And just you can soften it up by just naming them accurately. And again, Brene Brown's The Story I'm Telling Myself is like the best softener ever because really that takes the, the, the punch off of anything because you're not pointing a finger. You're saying, this is my story that I am telling myself. Is this true? Like, is this your truth? What's going on here? So I really love the story I'm telling myself as a softener. Or if you're using your intuition, naming it as such. Or if you're communicating a thought, just saying, here's what I think. Yeah, and the story I'm telling myself is so rich, too, because it you're taking responsibility, you know, for mm-hmm. this is just totally the way I see it, you know, and the way I'm thinking about it and the way that I'm the meaning that I'm adding to it. It's just a beautiful way of taking responsibility and ownership and yet still expressing right transparently and authentically 
how, mm-hmm. you know, what lens you are seeing through, what you are feeling, what you are thinking. And it's okay. It's just that we are, we're naming it and we're taking ownership of it at the same time. Well said. Love it. And adding a little levity, too, because, you know, when you, I notice that when I say that, the story that I'm telling myself, it's like, well, wait a minute, is that, is all of this really true? You know, it kind of, yes, exactly. Wow, like it just kind of makes me want to laugh (laughs) and think, wow, this whole thing, you know, might be pretty ridiculous, but here it is. I love it. And, you know, levity can't really coexist with reactivity. So if you can inject humor into it, the chances that you're going to stay in your rational brain are much better. Exactly. So thank you so much for having this conversation today and for being with us. Before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to add, any thoughts you have to offer? My main that I'll say to anybody who will listen is you are not crazy. And likely, if your brain is reacting in a way, there's a reason that your brain has done the things that it's done. There's a reason that you've adapted in the ways that you have. I'm not saying that everything that we do is okay, but I am saying if you look at everything in context, things make sense. And if you can start with the assumption that you're not crazy and that your brain has been doing its best to keep you alive, you're going to be so much more effective at creating change from a compassionate place instead of from a shaming place. No one has ever shamed themselves into being a happy person. So start with, you are not crazy. I love it. And when you can really like fully feel that and fully embody it and know it, keep that in mind for other people too, because we're all in that same place of navigating our experiences, our physiological sensations, all of it, our emotions. So, you know, when we can approach ourselves with compassion and each other with compassion and understanding, it does make the world a better place. Love it. Yes. Unfortunately, that was the abrupt end of my conversation with Britt. We had some technical difficulties there at the end, so I wasn't able to capture her sharing how to learn more about her or get in touch with her. So Britt is a licensed therapist who can provide one-to-one therapy for folks who live in Kansas or Missouri, and she is also a speaker. You can learn more about her at her website, which is www.the greenhousekc.com. And if you join her mailing list, you can stay updated on what she's got coming up. You can also find her on Instagram and her profile is at b.e.frank. And I'll include links for both her website and her Instagram profile in the post that accompanies this podcast. So love, that's all for today. I'm curious what your thoughts and emotions might be like after hearing the podcast today. Share in the comments if you would, or visit me over on Instagram, which is at beingandoingnow, to share your thoughts. And again, if you find value in this podcast, please go over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and share it with a friend. Thank you so much for being here, love. I so appreciate you and your presence. And remember, you make the world a better place by knowing yourself better, loving yourself more, and sharing from the heart. I'll see you on the next episode. In the meantime, keep being and doing you. Ciao for now.